Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. So here we are. It's October 30th. You're listening to us, and COVID is spiking again across America and in many parts of the world. Some parts of Europe are locking down again. Here in the U.S., some kids are physically attending school. Others are still in virtual. What's the right approach for us for trying to live our lives? After all, we still don't know when we'll have a vaccine or how effective it'll be. Where does this leave us? Is there a best hope herd immunity, or as some scientists call it, population immunity? Today's guest, Dr. Martin Kaldorf, goes as far as saying, quote, herd immunity is the most misunderstood term of 2020, end quote. So who is Dr. Martin Kaldorf? He's a professor of medicine at Harvard, a biostatistician, an epidemiologist with an expertise in detecting and monitoring infectious disease outbreaks and vaccine safety evaluations. And Martin, alongside Dr. Sunetra Gupta, a professor and epidemiologist at Oxford, and Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, a professor at Stanford University Medical School, together they created the Great Barrington Declaration. So what is the Great Barrington Declaration? It's a cohort of concerned scientists that want to rethink our response to COVID through an approach called focused protection. Like anything these days, it can be controversial, But what we know for sure is that people are struggling. We've talked about this mental health statistic before, but it bears repeating. One in four adults age 18 to 24 seriously considered suicide this summer. The numbers were shockingly high for unpaid caregivers, Black and Hispanic Americans, and essential workers too. Depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and trauma are rampant. And we haven't even gotten to the economic hardships so many have faced during this time. The Declaration offers another perspective on the best next steps. Because science should be a conversation, not a mandate. And even if you don't like everything Martin says, or me for that matter, it's imperative that we make space for these discussions, for being wrong, for being right, for finding answers and solutions that hurt the fewest people. Is the Great Barrington Declaration the right path for us? I don't know. But I do know that we have not done a great job managing COVID and people are hurting. I also believe we need to be open to different points of view when it comes to finding a path forward and being open to thoughtful discourse. Without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Martin Kaldorf. Martin, welcome. Thank you. So, you are a public health scientist at Harvard. So can you explain in layman terms what that actually means, what you study there? Yes. So my area of, of expertise in research is for a couple of decades, I've been working on infectious disease outbreaks, specifically how to detect them and how to monitor them. So this is how a disease, an infectious disease behaves in the community, in the population how it moves from one person to another, et cetera, which is different from, let's say, immunology or virology, where you study the immune system or how viruses uh, operate. And it's different from clinical science, where you study how to treat somebody with infectious diseases. So those are three different areas of infectious diseases. So I'm more on the epidemiological public health side, population-based side of it. Got it. Got it. So... I heard about you, read about you because of the Great Barrington Declaration, which 
when it first came out, I, I think I saw it on social media and I saw some chatter about Google playing around with the visibility of the Great Barrington Declaration, which we'll, we'll touch on, which is, it's, it's fascinating. The Google part is fascinating, but we'll stick to the Great Barrington Declaration. Can you explain to people what is the Great Barrington Declaration and what is the intention behind it? So a key aspect of COVID-19 is that while anyone can get infected and people of all ages get infected, the risk, the mortality risk is hugely different by age. And it's not just like it's twofold or fivefold or tenfold, even a hundredfold difference. The, the mortality risk from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold difference between the old and the young. So among older people, COVID-19 is very dangerous, much worse than the annual influenza. But for children, it's not dangerous. It's less uh, dangerous than the annual influenza. This is the feature of the disease, which is our enemy. So to best defeat or overcome this or minimize the mortality, we have to use that aspect of COVID-19. And it's very tragic in the United States. There's over 200,000 people now have died from COVID-19. And we haven't protected the older people well enough. So we must do a much better job protecting older people as well as other high-risk groups. But age is the primary risk factors. So we have to do a lot better do with that. At the same time as there's no public health reason for schools not to be, for children not to be in school in person. Um, also, young adults uh, are at very low risk. So children and young adults should live their lives uh, close to normal. They should wash their hands. And if they are sick, they should stay home and those things. But for the collateral damage from, from the lockdowns, for children, for example, education is important, but school is also critical for physical health and mental health and learning social behavior with other kids. That's enormously important. So for children and young adults, the lockdown is much worse, a lot worse than the risk from COVID-19. The key is that we have to separate and do a better job helping all people protect themselves but encourage children and young people to live uh, lives much more normally. So with the Great Barrington Declaration, was this kind of your call to action that, hey, over here, we're not protecting the, the, the most at risk. And at the same time, we're protecting, we're putting all these precautions in place for children who don't necessarily need it. And there's collateral damage, to use your words, with the, the school interaction and so forth. Is this like your idea of someone, we need to talk about this and we're not having that discussion? Yes, there are many of us who have been trying to talk about this since March, but haven't been very successful with the media. idea behind the Great Barrington Declaration was I invited two colleagues, Jay Bhattacharya from Stanford University and uh, world's preeminent infectious disease technologist, uh, Professor Sunita Gupta from Oxford University in England. So we came together, we did a two-hour video. We also authored and signed this Great Barrington Declaration. I found it interesting, or maybe it's a sign of the times when this first came out. I read the great interview you guys did in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend in USA Today, and it's great to see you finally getting the attention I think you deserve as we look to learn more about what we can do better and how do we evolve from this terrible uh, 
terrible virus. And early on, you couldn't, you weren't on Google. You were like, you're almost being censored by the internet. Yeah, so Google, it's called shadow banning. It means that we don't, the great, if somebody searched for the Great Barrington Declaration, they didn't find the actual declaration. Instead, they found all various media reports and other things that were trashing it. So there was, but on Bing, for example, there was not a, that issue. We we were num, uh, the Great Barrington Declaration came up as number one there in the Bing search. So it was only Google who did this. But Google, Google finally got their act together. Am I correct about that? Yeah, I think there were some complaints about Google, and then they 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 stopped shadow banning it. So on that subject, I'll move on to herd immunity. And that was another area that if you go to Google, you don't exactly get a broad range of search results. And you've said that herd immunity is the most misunderstood term of 2020. So what are we getting wrong about this term herd immunity? So it's very strange as an epidemiologist because herd immunity it has become like a bad word and is thought of as a strategy, which is not. Uh, herd immunity is a well-established uh, scientific phenomena that exists, just like gravity in physics. Gravity exists, and mm -hmm. nobody would talk about should we have gravity or not. And herd immunity exists, and it basically means that the pandemic will end before everybody is infected. Once there is a, a sufficient number of people in the population who are immune, then the epidemic will die down. It's never going to disappear completely, but it will be endemic, which means it will be, it be in the population and there will be a few people who get sick, but it wouldn't be this mass infections or mass mortality as we have had now because everybody was susceptible, nobody was immune when they started. So when you think about immunity, how much of it, when you think about that term or herd immunity, is it I've been exposed and I, or I had the virus and I have the antibodies versus this concept of native resistance, which we've talked about on this podcast, where essentially how, how my understanding of native resistance is I've been exposed to the virus, but th there's something in me that does that makes me not as susceptible my body says essentially oh I, i've seen this before because this is a coronavirus there's been this is 19 there's lots of these I, i've essentially seen this before a different variation i'm good i'm fighting this off like how, how much of it is I, i've been exposed to the antibodies or this concept of, of native resistance or is there something else as you think about developing herd immunity so there are a few different things there. Uh, one is that we clearly have immunity to COVID-19 because there have been very few reinfections. So there has been lots of people who have been infected, but very few of those have been reinfected the second time. There are a few exceptions, but there are very few compared to how many people have been infected. So we clearly have immunity, which means that once we've had it, we are we can fight it off if we're exposed a second time to the infection. And even those who have had it this, a second time, it will be much milder a second time. And that type of immunity is not only through antibodies. So if we have a positive antibody test, we know that we have been exposed before and we have immunity. But there are many people who have been exposed before who 
are still immune, but they don't have a positive antibody test because there's T-cell immunity, for example. Can you uh, talk about T-cell immunity? I'm interested. I think that's fascinating. So since I'm not an immunologist, it's better to ask immunologists about exactly these questions. That's fair. So what I only will say is that there are different types of immunity that helps us not get the disease a second time. And uh, some develop antibodies, but some don't. They fight it off in other ways. I think it's best to leave it like that because there's too many scientists who talk about areas of infectious diseases that they don't are expert on, and I don't want to answer that wrong. Well, well, you bring me up to another question. You bring up another question. You say too many scientists, and it seems like there are too many scientists. There's so many. There's so many scientists out there, and everyone has an opinion. And so, what's your take? It seems like we're making decisions like by a committee, and we're not. What's your take on scientific consensus as it relates to to COVID nineteen? It's a little bit strange and stunning because if we look at the media, most scientists who are in media seems to approve of a lockdown and contact tracing strategy. But in the Great Barrington Declaration, we don't think that is the right approach. And among infectious disease epidemiologists that I talk to at a personal level, who I have personal contact with as colleagues, most of them agree with me. Not everybody, but most of them agree with me. But then if you look at scientists, general scientists, they seem to believe very differently. So I think there's a disconnect, at least between the infectious disease epidemiologists that I talk to, the scientists in general, who are other medical scientists or even non-medical scientists. They seem to have a very different idea. And that has been a very strange to experience because when the media talks about follow the science, they're talking about something that I don't agree with as somebody who actually has spent quite many years studying infectious disease outbreaks at the population level, at the public health level. What would you do? We had, this was the end of June, we had Dr. David Katz on here, an epidemiologist from Yale, and he said part of the problem was we live in a very polarized world, a very political world right now, a world of extremes. And on one hand, you've got, and I'm speaking in hyperbole, but on one hand, you've got people who are like, I'm locking down, I'm not going out, and, and that's it. And then on the other hand, you've got, I'm going out to party with grandma in the bar, and we're drinking, and we're not wearing masks. And there's an, that what we call, that we joke, like the sensible middle path to this approach. And I'm curious, what, in your opinion, uh, and I'll, I'll timestamp this because the world changes fast. We're talking uh, Wednesday, October 28th at around 4 p.m. And this is going to air on the 30th, like uh, on October 28th. What would be what would you do? What would your be? What would your approach be? Uh, so the first thing I would do would, uh, would be to open all the school for in-person teaching. But to go to the other end of thing, and that is we have to help older people and other high-risk people to better protect themselves because they are at high risk and we don't want them to be infected by COVID-19. So there are essentially four groups there and what we do with them varies. So those that are at high risk are nursing home residents because they're already frail. So the key thing there is that nursing home staff have to be tested unless they're already immune because they've had it. They need to be frequently tested so that they don't bring in the virus to the residents. 
And it's much more important to test the staff than the residents. We also have to test visitors. So if you go and see your grandma, which I think you should do because she needs to have a visitor, do a test. And if it's, possible, if it's positive, postpone the visit by a few weeks. But all visitors should be tested. Also, staff rotations should be less. So each resident should minimize the number of staff they actually interact with because that minimizes the risk. So those are, and then of course, we shouldn't send the sick uh, people who, uh, older people who have the virus should not be sent to the nursing homes. That was done in the spring, very tragic. That led to many deaths. Uh, I don't think that's, I hope that's not happening anymore. But that's of course very important. The second group are older people who live either by themselves or with other older people so that they can isolate together be out and about outdoors and exercise and those things, go for walks and hikes and bicycling or whatever, that's important. But it's unnecessary for them to go to the supermarket and do shopping. So we should try to help them to have groceries and other necessary deliveries to them. They shouldn't join you at the bar. That's not a good idea. But obviously they want to see you. They want to see their, their children and grandchildren. The best way to do it is outdoors. But again, there should be, we should have uh, testing available so that they can see their relatives because that's very important. So that's the second group. Uh, the third group are people that are older but still in the workforce because people in the 60s are also high risk, not as high as 70s and 80s, but people in the 60s are also high risk. So they should, if they can, they should work from home. If they can't work from home, we should make it possible for them to take a sabbatical for a few months during uh, times of high transmission so that they are not exposed. And that's very, again, very tragic. During the spring, there were many of them that were exposed and many of them died uh, because we didn't protect them properly. So some measure may be using social security money so that they can take a three or four month sabbatical uh, and then, of course, be guaranteed that they can go back to work afterwards when uh, transmission is low again. The most difficult group are the old people who live in multi-generational homes. And there was a study from Stockholm that showed that older people who live with other older people, they are less risk than older people who live with working age adults. So those who live with working age adults, I think it was 60% higher risk compared to living with somebody else that were also old. So people, older people living in multi-generational home with, let's say, a son or a daughter who is in their 40s or whatever, they are at higher risk, so we have to help protect them. So again, during high uh, times of transmission, if their son or working age son or daughter can work from home, that's good because then they can isolate themselves in the bubble. And if there are children, they can still go to schools because the same studies show that having children in the household didn't increase the, the risk any more than just having the working age adults. So it's the working age adults who are, who are the, the threat, basically, to the old people. So if they can work at home, that's, they should do that, uh, because not because of themselves, but because of their parents who are older. If that's not possible, then maybe the older people can live with an older sibling or an older neighbor for a while, for maybe three or four months during high transmission. And if that's not possible, maybe we can use empty hotel rooms where they can be housed temporarily. 
And the key thing is that if we don't do the lockdown for the whole population, then this will be over much faster within a few months. If we do lockdown for the whole population, then we're pushing things forward in time. And then it makes it much more difficult for older people to actually properly protect themselves because you can take certain measures for a few months, but to do it now over a year, which will be, will be soon, uh, that's much more difficult. So you keep on mentioning elderly, the elderly. Have to, we have to protect the elderly, which I agree. But I would ask you, so we're, we also know that the virus can really hurt people who aren't healthy. And we are chronically unhealthy here in America. You think of comorbidity, we talk about metabolic health, 12, only 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy, which means 88% of us aren't. So even if you take out the healthy, there are a lot of people here living in America who are at risk because they're either diabetic or obese. And is that part of the, is that also part of the issue here? Because we have to protect th those people who are vulnerable too. Yes and no. So there is an increased risk if you have, for example, diabetes or if you're obese. So that has an increased risk, and I think it's about a twofold increased risk. So being so this group would be at the same risk of somebody else who is who doesn't have this, but who is maybe five to ten years older. So if I would say that everybody who is in their 60s, 70 or, or 80s have to be very careful. But if you have these conditions that you're in, 50, in your 50s, you should also be very careful. On the other hand, if you're in the 20s, you are still at very low risk, even if you have some of these conditions. Got it. So in terms of the lockdown, we, we've talked about that. And, and you said in the Wall Street Journal, quote, the lockdowns are the worst assault on the working class in half a century, the worst assault since segregation in the Vietnam War. When I read that, I said, wow. So can, can you unpack that for us? What we're doing now is, we are protecting uh, low-risk college students and low-risk professionals like bankers or lawyers or journalists like you yep. or a scientist like me who can work from home. At the same time, the cab driver or the person working in the supermarket or the janitor, they have to go to work. Even though, so we are putting older people in the working class at risk because they are forced to work. So we're shifting the infection risk from low-risk people to high-risk people and low-risk professionals to high-risk working class. So it's the, the working class that's carrying the burden of generating the population immunity, which will eventually protect all of us. But they're also the or ones the dying. Too. They're disproportionately dying, too, which Correct. is a failure. And it also Correct. disproportionately yeah. affects minority communities. It's, it's tragedy. It's terrible. Yes. And the policy affects working class in general, but since infections tend to hit cities more, urban areas more, it's, it's more the worst hit are the inner city working class. They are the, the worst hit from the COVID-19. And I think it's mm -hmm. very tragic. And you can see that for, there was, for example, a study from Toronto where they show that in the beginning of the epidemic, mortality was the same across the different neighborhoods of Toronto, the high income and low income. And then when you implemented the lockdown, the low income, it continues to rise. 
while the high income flattened out. So it was a very clear difference that the lockdown is protecting the high risk. The, upper class. Uh, upper income levels, but not the lower income levels. And obviously the older people who are in the higher income brackets, they have to be protected. That is very important. But we also have to protect the older people in the lower income people, and that we haven't done. And we've especially failed in the inner cities. It makes total sense. The lockdown effect, uh, effectively hurts the lower class and the middle class, yet protects the upper class. Again, people who can afford to work remotely like you and I can versus people who have to deliver groceries and do all the work and put their lives at risk, literally in the front lines. So what, what I am so fascinated by personally, I live in Brooklyn, I live in New York City, and New York feels, I, I read the news, and again, I'll preface this, it's, it's October 28th. New York City is pretty good in terms of infection rate. And I remember in, in March, April, May, when it was pretty doom and gloom here. And you see a lot of rural America right now light up. El Paso looks terrible. It, it, it's so, it, it's unbelievable. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what's your take on... I can't figure out why New York is okay right now. It doesn't make sense. There's people, we're in tight quarters. People are starting to get back out here. Yes, they're wearing masks, but they're taking the subways. We live in apartment buildings. It, it doesn't make sense to me why we're okay in rural America isn't. Uh, the reason is that in New York State was hit by hard and there's a lot of immunity. A lot of people in New York have all had it. Some had it without knowing it because it was asymptomatic, but they were exposed and they have they now have immunity. While many areas in other places of the country, they locked down before there was much transmission. So they have still very little immunity and all, all susceptible people. They have pushed it into the future. Interesting. Down very early, and now they are having now they are having more more transmission. So two points, two questions I have. I think that's fascinating. So one, you believe is one of the reasons why New York is okay is because we didn't we locked down later, so the virus was out there more. Versus other cities in rural America locked down too early. Is is that what you're? Because I've actually heard that before. So it came to New York City earlier than most other places. The only rural place in the U.S. that got it earlier was a few counties in southern Georgia. So New York, and that's natural because New York has more international uh, connections. So it's very, and also because it's a big city, it tends to spread faster because there's more contacts. So there was, when the lockdown happened, there was already a lot of spread and transmission in New York City. So it's not so much uh, the calendar time when you lock down, it's sort of the time you lock down in uh, relation to how much transmission there's already been. So many other areas, they locked down before there was very much transmission in the community, even if they maybe did it on exactly the same date as New York City. Wow. And so the other point I'll bring up too is this idea that you could have immunity, but not necessarily have the antibodies, just to be clear. Correct. Yes. And you can have immunity without having had any symptoms because you were infected and you were asymptomatic. And so I'm just thinking in my head, oh my God, if I'm a public health expert here, and if I'm trying to figure out if this happens again, it seems like there's a delicate balance of when to quote unquote lock down or 
do a, a micro lockdown, if you will, which I hear people are doing now. They're picking these hot spots. And I think you talked about, I think it's Singapore, I want to say that's doing like areas of the world where they focus on specific hotspots and lock those down and everyone else can take the regular precautions. But as a public health expert, UK also is UK. But as a public health expert, how do you manage that? What's the like the fine line between we need to this needs to <laughs> of locking down too early versus too late? It seems like New York the infection rate is relatively stable and it's not yeah. spiking and in some ways it seems like whether we intended, whether we approach this in the right way or the wrong way, that's where we are. Whereas other parts of the country, they're unfortunately not. Yeah, so they locked down before there was much transmission and therefore they have pushed it from the spring into the fall instead. So they have postponed their problems. And so how do you manage that as a public health expert? Or is that just the, is that the big unknown that everyone's trying to figure out right now? No, the way to manage this is to not lock down the whole general population, but to protect those that are at high risk while letting younger people live their normal lives. And some of them are going to get sick, but we drive a car knowing that some people are going to get in an accident but we still let people drive a car. So we have to let young people live their lives. And by doing so, they're actually helping the older people. They're not putting the older people at risk because they're helping older people by generating the immunity that eventually, when there's enough immunity in the population, will allow older people also to live normal lives. Younger people who live their lives normally are doing a service to those that are at high risk. So you've also said that the, the COVID restrictions violate two cardinal principles of health. One, you said, quote, you can't just look at COVID. You have to look holistically at health and consider the collateral damage. And then two, quote, you can't just look short term. So I, I, we'll focus on short term. It seems like we're all just trying to get by every day. H how do you think about what should the focus be on this in the longer term? And what is the longer term? So the longer term is that there will be enough immunity so that the pandemic will end and it will be as endemic like many other viruses that we deal with on a daily basis. So that is the end game, that there will be enough uh, immunity either through natural infection or a vaccine or a, or a combination of both. So that's the end game. And we can postpone that into the future like they did in other areas, or New York has gone through it. There's a lot more immunity in New York. So New York should be able to live much more normally now than most other places in the United States, but it's not taking advantage of it for some strange reason. And so how will we know other than we look at the tests and numbers? So I, I think what I think what most people do right now is they take two tests. They take a, am I positive or negative? They do their COVID test, and they do their antibody test. Is there another, is there another way to, to know at an individual level? And then collectively as a society, how are we going to, is it, we just going to see the numbers eventually just continue to, to dwindle? How are we going to know? Yeah. So we know that we have passed through it when we have uh, very low death counts, but still live normal lives. We're back to living normal lives. That's when we know we've gotten through it. And we don't know how close New York City is to that. 
because it's not normal living as of yet. But what New York City should do is it should open all the schools for in-person teaching. People under 50 should live uh, normal lives and go about, do what they normally do. And then those who are above 60 should be very careful as long as there's transmission. Right now, there's very little transmission in New York City. But if that increases at some point, then they have to be careful again. And, and what do you know about transmission today that we didn't know when this first started? I remember surfaces, air, inside versus outside. Like, what, what, what do we know about transition today? Transmission. Well, one thing we know is that while children will get infected, they are very unlikely to transmit it to others. There has been a studies, for example, from Iceland where they look at the genetics of the viruses, and they found that while adults will often affect children, will seldomly infect adults. And we can also see that from data from Sweden, which kept its schools open during the height of this pandemic. And the teachers who were teaching their kids throughout this time going to work, their risk for COVID is the same as the average of other professions. So being exposed to children doesn't increase your risk uh, of COVID-19. And of course, we know that uh, children are at very low risk themselves because among 1.8 million children in Sweden who went to school throughout the height of the pandemic, there were exactly zero deaths from COVID-19 and only a handful of hospitalizations. I know that Sweden, do you view Sweden? I know there are mixed reviews on Sweden. What do you think about how they uh, handled the virus? I think it's the only Western country who, who have handled it in the same manner without doing very lockdowns that are very detrimental to uh, society while minimizing, while doing... They failed protecting the nursing homes in Stockholm, and that led to a lot of extra death. But uh, we can see now from the statistics in Sweden, from January to September, there are, I think, now 5,900-something COVID-19 cases in Sweden out of 10 million people. But the excess mortality in Sweden is less than 2,000 during this time period compared to the previous five years. Uh, A lot of these people who are classified as dying from COVID-19, they maybe died with COVID rather than from COVID. So the excess mortality is less than 2,000, and that is without lockdowns. Uh, With precautions, older people should stay home, and nobody was forced to, but they were advised to do that, etc. But schools were opened, no masks were used, restaurants were open, and so on. So life is fairly normal in Sweden and has been throughout, or at least since June or so. And and mortality, the excess mortality is very low. In your opinion, which country is the model? Which countries handled this the best? Who should we be learning from? I think Sweden. Okay. What about things I've read is in Asia, for example, China, like they've dealt, they've dealt with this before. And so they were light years ahead in terms of contract tracing, really focusing on those hotspots. Do you think that's something we, we could learn from in Asia where they've dealt with, you know, multiple outbreaks? 
Japan, I think, is another model. Japan has not gone into lockdown. So the Japan, the strategy in Japan has been very similar to the strategy in Sweden. But Japan has less mortality from COVID compared to Sweden. At the same time, there was a study that came out recently, which shows that the immunity levels are quite high in Japan. So it seems like people are still being infected in Japan, but the mortality is very low. And I'm not sure why that is. They're also very healthy. Japan is, Japanese are very healthy for the most part. I know I'm generalizing, but they're healthier than Americans. Uh, that's very true. I think Japan has one of the longest uh, life expectancies in the world. They have healthy eating habit, habits, for example. Uh, so that's very true. And I'm, I'm sure that helps for sure. I don't think it's the only explanation, but it's probably a contributing explanation. So I'm curious, you say like, when you say it's not the whole explanation, I'm curious from your perspective, what are the things that you're still curious about where you're, you're, you're baffled, you're saying, God, what's going on over there? I don't understand. What are the questions you want answers to with regards to COVID? So why is it that the older people have such higher risk for mortality than younger people? That's one question I would like to know. Uh, we know it's true, but we don't. And, and obviously, older people are always more sensitive to infections and so on. There's certainly that component. But I don't think that it itself explains the big difference because it's more extreme than for influenza, for example. So influenza also have a gradient that is more risky for, for older people. But for COVID, it's more extreme than influenza. Also, the, the 1918 pandemic was very dangerous for younger people. So it's very different from that. So that's one question. What is explaining that? Also, why is it that some people, what's the risk factor for dying from this versus not dying? Because some people in the 90s, they fight it off quite well. But we know that there are some children who have died from it. So what are the explanations of, of, those, of those differences? And to what extent is there cross-immunity from other viruses? Does that help us fight off? And maybe we are asymptomatic because of it, for example. So to what extent does the... So we know that being exposed to COVID-19 provides immunity, but what's the role of cross-immunity from other coronaviruses, for example? Because there's been a lot of these. Yeah, we have other coronaviruses that are that we live with. They are endemic as a regular part, giving us common cold, for example. Now, with regards to transmission, is there anything you want to know or you, or you think that's been established? No, there are questions there also, exactly how it transmits and so on. I think there are big questions with that. Um, but those questions are there for many other viruses as well that we don't quite know exactly how they transmit. Still safe to say it's in, in, indoor mouth, air circulation, outdoors, probably not as likely. Like how would you describe like your highest risk transmission if you were to rank versus your lowest risk transmission? What we know today. Outdoor I think is less risk of transmission. And so I think people should spend time outdoors. It's, it's also great for health in general. It's good to be outside. So when they close parks or playgrounds, for example, I find that disturbing because it's 
young and old should be out, outside outdoors. And then something I read recently, I'm curious what your take is. Airplanes actually probably okay, but it's what you have to do, whether it's in the airport or other places you have to go. But airplane, you know, flights actually aren't or are probably okay. I I don't have enough. I haven't read up on it enough to be able to have an informed opinion on it. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. I think I read that in the Wall Street Journal too recently. And where do you think this conversation is going to be? And it changes every day. It changes, like, or what is your hope? Like, in January, in twenty twenty one, if you can go that far ahead in January, where do you think we're going to be? I think there's an increasing realization of the enormous collateral damage from the lockdowns on various other aspects of public health, and that we can't only look at COVID nineteen. We have to look at public health as a whole. So the child immunizations rates have plummeted. Cardiovascular disease outcomes are worse. People are not doing the cancer screening. So somebody who, who would have lived for maybe 15, 20 years because they didn't get their pap smear might die now three to four years from now. The mental health has deteriorated. So I think there's more and more realization of these things. For example, if we look at uh, house evictions that are occurring now, that's not good for health to be evicted from the home. So there are many of these things that, and just as the COVID-19 is hitting the working class and especially the inner city working class the hardest, uh, the lockdown is also hitting the working class the hardest because the working class doesn't have the same savings or buffer to deal with uh, hard times like this. And the poor in the third world, in the developing world, have been hit enormously with the children starving to death in, in Africa and Asia, for example, because their parents uh, live like from day to day in terms of their uh, getting food. So when suddenly the rug is full out of them, they, they cannot properly feed their families anymore. So that's enormously tragic. And I read somewhere that about 10,000 children per per month is dying from from hunger and of course there are many who are who are, who are hungry and that leads to uh, malnutrition leads to bad uh, health outcomes for many years to come so i understand why politicians think of their own area that they're responsible for but as public health scientists i do not understand why public health scientists do uh, ignore those terrible effects of lockdowns in the developing world when they are recommending lockdowns as a way to deal with this pandemic. It's very surprising and uh, distressing. So in closing, you know, pull out the, the pessimist and optimist in you. What concerns you? What worries you? And then on the flip side, what excites you? What concerns me is that we're not protecting the elderly as, as well as we should. And also that we're letting children bear the burden of this by closing the schools, even though they are at very little risk and then a little risk of infecting others. So I'm very concerned about the children and of course, especially working class children because wealthier families can do private school or do support schools. So those are my two major concerns. My optimism is the enormous positive reaction we have received from the Great Barrington Declaration, 
from uh, around the world and from regular people who are actually thinking uh, very logical about this. And they see the damages from the lockdowns and they see how uh, how it doesn't make sense to pro try to protect everybody when there's a certain group that needs to be protected. So that has been very encouraging and stimulating to see that. And for example, with the Great Barrington Declarations, we now have it translated to 40 languages of so people who just uh, voluntarily do it and send the translation. The last one I got was from uh, in Estonian. So people just stepping up to the plate and helping to, to put this right and follow the more basic public health principles that we need to do when we have a pandemic. Pandemics are, are terrible. We can't avoid all deaths, but we need to minimize the mortality as much as we can. And in closing, what's the, what the one piece of advice you have to everyone listening who wants to educate themselves and wants to spread the word about the work you're doing? If you're above 60, be very careful. Take precautions. If you're below 50, try to live your life as normal as you can. That simple. Yes. Wow. Okay. We will close there. Martin, thank you so much for all of your work with the Great Barrington Declaration and providing a, a point of view, which is different. You don't see your point of view in the mainstream media much. And I think having a different point of view and talking about ways we can open and do so responsibly and yet protect those most vulnerable is a discussion that I think a lot of people want to have. And that's a shame we're, we had to wait till October 28th to talk to you and see you get finally getting the attention and the Great Barrington Declaration finally get this attention. It's been too long. So thank you. And one other thing is that live generally healthy lives because eat healthy and exercise. That's, of course, that's important for COVID-19 because we know that obesity, diabetes, and those things are country risk factors. So if you ever, if there ever was a good time to eat more healthy and exercise more, this is it. But of course, that's also beneficial for all other diseases like cardiovascular disease and cancer and so on. So that's also a, a recommendation that I give for everybody from age zero to age 100 and whatever. 100% agreed. It's not just age. It's, again, our metabolic health. 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. If you think about those markers, you talk about LDL, you talk about like essentially comorbidity, diabetes, prediabetes, obesity. These are all lifestyle diseases for the most part, which we can really change with changing what we put in our plates, the power of nutrition, moving, getting out there. And I think that was something also the CDC was just like so late on, like beyond late. Like that should have been a message. Hey guys, we got to get healthy right now. We yeah. know that people are healthier, have better outcomes. Let's get healthy. Let's try to get yes. out there, eat more plants, exercise. Like where was that? Yeah. That so, is so important. So while we're talking about it now, better late than never. Martin, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was a great pleasure.